The following message has been brought to you by Trinity Baptist Church. For more information, visit us on the web at trinitybc.org. Matthew chapter 1 this morning. Go back to Matthew chapter 1. If you've been with us, you know we have been walking verse by verse through the Gospel of Matthew, uh, walking through the life of Christ. We've made it to the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, And we have been in the Sermon on the Mount for a number of weeks now as we have uh, been diving deeply into the deep truth that Jesus is teaching to us. Uh, We are are examining at a very close level the Word of God as we navigate through it. What I want to do this morning is to back up, to fly again over chapters 1 through 5 more at a, a flying altitude to see the big picture And what I hope to convince you of this morning, my aim, my goal, is that you see, even in the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, as Matthew is telling us of the life of Christ, he is leading us to get to the moment of the cross. To get to the moment where Jesus Christ gives his life a ransom for sinners. And to not see the cross as something that was an accident, To not see the cross as something that happened outside of God's control, that God was trying to work it otherwise, and it just so happened that it it ended in the way it ended. No, but as we read the Gospel of Matthew rightly, what we come to see and understand is that all the while, Matthew is leading us to understand that the cross was the purpose for Jesus' coming. That the cross wasn't an accident. That the cross wasn't plan B. But even from the very beginning, from even the birth of Christ, we shall see, the cross was in mind that Jesus Christ came to give His life a ransom for sinners, a ransom for His people. So we're going to do an overview of the first five chapters of the Gospel of Matthew, where I hope you see that theological point that we're pointing to interwoven throughout even the stories that Matthew is sharing with us about the Lord Jesus Christ. Before we look to Matthew chapter 1, I want to read for you Acts chapter 4, which puts the point I just made pretty plain, pretty clear for us. Uh, Acts chapter 4, and it'll be on the screen for you, verses 27 and 28. Peter is speaking here. Peter is actually praying to the Lord here. It's addressed to God as a prayer, and we read these words. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, there's some deep doctrinal depth to what Peter is speaking here, what he's saying. There's a great mystery even in what Peter is declaring here involving the sovereignty of God and the freedom of human volition, of, of human choice. And yet all the while, God and His sovereignty working in and through even the most evil, atrocious act that would ever be committed, the rejection of the Son of God incarnate to the extent of crucifying Him, nailing Him to a cross. And yet, Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, prayed this prayer recorded by Luke for our admonition and learning. Peter prays and he says, It's your servant, Jesus, 
the one you, the Father, have anointed. But notice what he says. Both Herod and Pontius Pilate acted according to God's hand and God's purpose determined before to be done. And so even even Herod and Pontius Pilate, as they acted in their own free volition, in their own self-interest, as they were seeking to really just maintain their rule over the people and to not look bad to the emperor and, and to, to maintain peace within the people that they were trying to rule and subdue, even as they're acting in their own self-interest, the purpose of God was being accomplished through their sinful desires. The mystery in that. The Gentiles, even the Roman soldiers that took Jesus and nailed Him to a cross, they were not acting in a way that God had not foreordained beforehand in the sense of His purposes were being fulfilled. That's not to say they're not guilty for their decisions. They were. It's not to say they weren't wrong in what they were freely, willingly choosing to do. They were. The grand mystery about the God of the Scriptures He's a God that's bigger than even the sins of mankind. He's a God who is at work even in that dark hour to accomplish a purpose that He set beforehand, even before the foundation of the world, it says in Revelation, that Jesus is the, the, the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world, that God had this plan of redemption in mind. The cross was no accident. It was no incident. It was divinely intended by the hand of God to fulfill the purposes of God that sinful man might be reconciled to holy God. That we might be forgiven even this side of the cross this many years later where you and I can be forgiven and redeemed and have a way to the Father. It's because of Jesus and what Jesus did for us at Calvary according to the hand and purpose of God determined beforehand. The people of Israel the Jews that rejected Christ and that shouted, crucify Him, crucify Him, release to us Barabbas, but crucify Jesus. They didn't believe that He was the Christ after they realized He wasn't going to free them from Roman bondage. And, and so they felt betrayed. They said, crucify Him. They acted of their own free volition and it was out of the wicked intent of their hearts that they screamed such things. And yet all the while, God was at work. All the while, God was leading Christ to that cross to fulfill the purpose for which He came. And to lay down His life for His sheep as a good shepherd. To shed His blood in order that our sins might be washed as snow. To have His body broken upon that cross in order that you and I as sinners might be forgiven, might be made whole, might be healed, might be brought back to God. Matthew chapter 1. We'll quickly just walk through these this morning. Matthew chapter 1. Notice this truth about the purpose of Jesus' coming first found in His birth. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21. We see Jesus is the one who will save us from our sins. Even in the very beginning when, when Mary has, has this miraculous conception. She was not miraculously conceived. She had a miraculous conception of the Holy Spirit where the Son of God was put into her womb, the Son of God made incarnate, and Joseph, Mary's soon-to-be full husband, betrothed husband, says, that was not put there by me, what's going on? An angel appears, and an angel has this message that, that uh, Joseph hears from the angel. The angel says to them, and you 
Uh, she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. From the very beginning, the mission, the purpose of his coming is defined, even by his very name that means Savior. Jesus, Savior, Jehovah, Yahweh saves. He will be the one who is coming for the purpose of salvation. He will be the one that in some way, shape, or form delivers people, humanity, from our iniquity, from our sin, from our fallenness. We see it in his baptism, John chapter 3. Jesus is the one who takes the place of sinners. John or Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist is proclaiming a message of repentance. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And along comes Jesus as the crowd had gathered to hear this message of repentance, and many were being baptized by John the Baptist. The baptism was a public profession, identifying with John's message to admit, hey, I'm a sinner, I need to repent, I am repenting, I'm turning back to God, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When one was baptized, that was the message that they proclaimed. And so Jesus comes up and John knows who Jesus is, the sinless Son of God incarnate. And and Jesus says, John, I want you to baptize me. And what does John say? Lord, no, I can't baptize you. You're not a sinner in need of repentance. He says, you ought to be the one baptizing me. And what does Jesus say in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 15? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Something about what he was doing had something to do with the fulfillment of all righteousness. What we see as we look at the big picture, what Jesus is actually doing in this baptism at the very beginning of his ministry, is he's being identified in the place of sinners as the sinless Son of God. He, He, in baptism, is even foreshadowing what is to come in the future where he literally takes the place of sinners as He hangs upon a cross and God puts upon Him our sin and He bears the penalty for the sins of the world in His baptism. We see that pictured even at the very beginning. The reason for His coming was not merely to make humanity better, to give us a code of conduct to live by, to give us some teaching that will make us a little bit better than we are. No, He came to give His life. He came to die upon a cross for your sins and mine. He came to take the place of sinners. Because only by His taking our place can we truly find forgiveness and redemption. We see it in His temptation. John chapter 4. John chapter 4, Jesus is the one who overcomes sin and the devil. There is undoubtedly a parallel here to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 3, the fall of Adam and the fall of Eve. The fall of the first humans. The first man, Adam, was tempted of the devil, and he succumbed to temptation. He gave way. He rebelled against God. He sinned, and because of sin, all the consequences of sin have come, and even death itself, the result of falling away. And what do we find with the Christ, with Jesus? He was tempted also three times, and yet he overcame. He vindicated his righteousness. His righteousness that is perfect. His righteousness is the second Adam who is what we ought to have been when we failed. He succeeded. Jesus said in Matthew 4 and verse 10, Then He said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only you shall serve. Adam, the first man, fell. Jesus, the second man, the the true and better Adam, 
He is the one who overcomes even where we fail. We see it in His miracles. John chapter 4, verses 23 and 24, that Jesus is the one who heals our infirmities. He's the one who heals the consequences of sin. You realize all the brokenness of this life, all the, all the sicknesses, death itself are all a result of the fall. In the Garden of Eden prior to the fall, there was no death. There was no sin. Therefore, there was no consequence of sin. Jesus shows up on the scene and He quickly vindicates His power. He reveals His power over even the consequences of sin. Even over the brokenness of this life. And He heals the blind and gives sight to the blind. He heals those with leprosy. He causes the the lame to walk and the deaf to hear. He shows His power even over the demonic forces as He casts out demons. He reveals His power over the consequences of sin. And hear me, He also reveals His heart for those who who are under the consequences of sin. He doesn't turn a hard heart towards those who were broken and hurting and those who were the neglected and the cast out of that day and age of that society but He has a heart to see their need and a heart that's moved with compassion even to heal them. We read Matthew chapter 4, verses 23 and 24, and Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Then His fame went throughout all Syria. It wasn't only for the Jews and, and, and for Israel, but even in the Gentile regions of Syria. And they brought to Him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics and paralytics. And He healed them. He demonstrated He was the incarnate Son of God who had power over sin, death, and even the grave. Is At a later moment, He'll look to Lazarus who's been dead three days in the tomb and say, Get up! Come out of the grave! And up He arose out of the grave. We see this truth also in His teaching. Lastly, Jesus is the one who fulfills the law and the one who has the righteousness that we need. Matthew chapter 5, specifically verses 17 and 20. Jesus says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And He says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And so what Jesus is doing on the Sermon on the Mount I hope you get this through your your, your thick skulls and remember it and don't get confused ever by it, no matter what anybody else is saying out there, that Jesus is not teaching us what we must do to enter the kingdom of heaven. He's not saying, here's the road map, and if you do these things and don't do these things, if you develop these characteristics and put off those characteristics, then you'll earn your standing before God. Then you'll justify yourselves. No, Jesus says your righteousness must be must be a little better than even the scribes and the Pharisees. It needs to be a whole different sort and a whole different type of righteousness. And the Sermon on the Mount is ultimately leading us to realize we don't measure up. None of us are righteous, no, not one. All we like sheep have gone astray. Everyone has turned to his own way. That none of us will ever be able to stand before God and say, here, here am I, here's my life, here's my righteousness, let me in. Oh, God will say, your, your little works of righteousness aren't enough to overcome your sin. Your sin is still there. 
and your sin is still condemnable by a holy, just God. And therefore, He will look to those who think by their works they'll enter the kingdom of heaven. He'll look to them and say, Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I don't know you. Why, why would Jesus have come to the cross and endured the suffering and agony of the cross if we could do it on our own by just turning over a new leaf in our life and being a little bit better than we, we were? It takes more than that. It takes more than just our good works. We need a righteousness that's beyond us. A righteousness that is perfect. A righteousness that only the incarnate Son of God has who is the complete fulfillment of the law that came before. Peter worded it well in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. Speaking of Jesus, it says, Jesus Himself bore our sins in His own body on the tree that we having died to sins might live for righteousness by whose stripes we are healed. They say, well, where, where are our sins dealt with? How, how can I be forgiven and redeemed and restored? How is it that God, who is holy and just, can, can forgive me and wipe away my sins? Don't I have to pay for it? No, a payment has to be made, but the beauty of God's grace and love is the payment has been made. Jesus Christ came to die. The cross was not an accident. It wasn't a misunderstanding. It was the purpose in the hand of God at work even to accomplish His purpose from the very beginning of redemption that there would be a way that sinful people can be reconciled to holy God. You're not justified by anything or anyone apart from the body broken and the blood shed. As we come to a time of partaking the Lord's Supper together, you realize that what we do here does not add to our salvation. It does not save you if you are lost. What we do in the partaking of communion is we first remember what truly does save us. What this points to is the body that was broken, the bread. That the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, when He climbed that hill called Golgotha, when He was nailed to that cross, and where He gave His life a ransom for your sins and my sins, we are to look at that bread and to think of His body broken. We're to look at that cup. We're to remember the blood that was shed, that was poured out, so that our sins can be washed away. We remember as we partake of communion the grace in which we stand, and we also profess and we proclaim even as we partake of it, as we eat the body and as we drink the blood, this literally isn't the body and the blood of Jesus. This is symbolically reminding us of the body and the blood of Jesus. But in our partaking of these elements, we do make a profession. We do proclaim just as we do through baptism, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. I am utterly dependent upon the body broken and upon the blood that was shed. I know I can't stand before God in my own righteousness. I'm a sinner in need of the grace and mercy of God. But thanks be to God, He gave Christ for me. I have eaten of the body and I've drank, in, uh, drank of the blood. I have repented and believed upon Christ as my Lord and Savior. And so what we're going to do in just a moment is for believers. It would be a lie if you were a non-believer and you came to make that proclamation through the partaking of this bread broken and of this cup, the, 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 the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that's been given for the remission of our, our sins. And so I do ask, if you're here and you just kind of, what would be kind of titled as a, a seeker, one who's trying to find out more and you've never come to a place of, Believing upon Christ as Lord and Savior, 
Don't, don't come get the cup or the bread. It's really for believers. And it's also for believers, Paul warns us, that are seeking to, seeking to write and follow the Lord. That if there's unconfessed sin in your life, um, there's actually judgment that can come upon you as you partake of this flippantly. As you aren't giving the right attention and right heart to what we're about to do, as we do remember and proclaim the Lord's death, His body broken and His blood shed, if there's any sin in your life, it's good to get that dealt with so that you may rightly come before the Lord and rightly be standing in His grace afresh and anew as you proclaim the body broken in the blood shed. And so what I want to do is have an, an invitation now before we partake of communion together. Just a time of private examination and reflection before the Lord for you to let the Lord seek out your heart and you know, pray even Psalm 139, see if there be any wicked way in me. If there is, Lord, lead me to confession and repentance. And if you're here and you don't know Christ as Lord and Savior, I don't invite you to this table because this table up here isn't what saves you. But I do invite you to Christ, the one to whom this table points to. You need what Jesus has done for you, not what this, not what this is. You come to Christ first. If you've never turned to Jesus and believed upon Him as your Lord and Savior, even as we have this invitation, I beg of you, you can do it there in the privacy of your own heart before the Lord, sitting in the pew you're sitting in. Turn to God and say, God, I know I'm a sinner. I know I can't save myself. Lord, I know You gave Jesus to do what I couldn't do. He died upon that cross for my sins. He was buried and I know He was raised again. And I ask You, Lord, save me because of Him. Romans 10.13 says, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you've never prayed that prayer and truly meant it before the Lord, just in broken humility over your own sin, and just in, 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 just in, in mysterious awe of the grace and love of God that He's given to you in Christ, if you've never prayed that, I beg you, turn to Him. Believe upon Christ as Lord and Savior. Then you may come and make a true profession of faith as you partake of the, the bread and the cup that represent the body broken and the blood that was shed. Heavenly Father, we come to You and I pray in this time of invitation You would work through Your Spirit to bring conviction where conviction is needed. That, Lord, of Your loving kindness, You would lead us to repentance and find that You are faithful and just to forgive us as we confess our sins before You. Lord, for every believer that we would enter coming to these tables with a pure heart before You, desiring to, to leave here in the fullness of Your grace, restored and renewed and refreshed in the grace of Christ in which we stand. Lord, if there be one in here who's never come to repentance and belief upon Christ, never come to that place of the confession of their sin, their sinfulness and belief upon Jesus as Lord and Savior, I pray even now that they'd be doing that. They would get that settled. Today would be the day of their salvation. Lord, work, I pray in this moment. I ask You in Jesus' name.